Welcome to the J Liberty Podcast, Episode 3. This episode is about home and rent cost. It's no secret that uh, rent and the price of homes uh, seems to be skyrocketing, especially since the middle of the pandemic and after the pandemic, um, if we can call this after in 2021. The uh, desire to stay at home more definitely increased the demand for different places to live, better places to live. Um, and so people have, uh, people have been willing to spend more, and that's driven the cost up. But this isn't the first time that home prices have been high or that rent has been high. This is an ongoing trend, and it keeps getting more expensive. And even proportionate to wage increases, it seems like the price of homes, uh, especially to purchase, but also even for rent, um, seems to be increasing. Um, rent is high because real estate is expensive. It's expensive to build, it's expensive to buy, it's expensive to just own. Um, the cost just gets passed along to the tenant uh, who's renting the unit. So really, what we need to look at to determine why um, rent is expensive is why the cost of building is expensive and the cost of owning uh, a building, uh, a residence, is expensive. So. First, we want to talk about compliance cost. So compliance cost is the expense that a business or, in this case, a real estate developer um, or, or really anyone, it can even be an individual, um, compliance cost is the cost that we uh, have to pay to comply with laws. Now, that can include anything from just paying permit fees and stuff like that to paying for different equipment um, to build something a certain way or to pay for more expensive building materials um, that are required to be uh, compliant with the law. So compliance cost factors in a lot here. The first piece of uh, compliance cost is building safety regulations. Now, when you say that, you think, well, we need building safety regulations, otherwise buildings would just collapse on people's heads. Okay. Fair enough, maybe there need to be some safety regulations, but we'll get to that in a second. First, it's important to understand just how many building safety regulations there are and the, 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 the sheer size and scope of it. This isn't just, you know, you need to have a building that's structurally sound and isn't a fire hazard. This is the National Electrical Code, the International Residential Code, the Uniform Plumbing Code, the Uniform Mechanical Code, those are just the typical ones that are required for building a typical home in a normal American town. A lot of states and local um, governments have their own um, special set of restrictions and building codes on top of these. And each of those types of codes that I just mentioned, those aren't a list of 12 things that have to be done a certain way. Each of those is a full-size book that has to be purchased. Often they're about the price of textbooks, too. They're like $100 a piece, usually. Uh, just to get the book, um, and it's page after page after page of very specific regulations down to how many inches something must be from something else and the type of material it must be used and, you know, uh, definitions of, of amps and different things like that. Um, and so, so these are very complicated codes to, to follow, and a lot of times it requires a building contractor to, to follow those codes. Um, and nothing against building contractors, but they're very expensive um, precisely because they have to know all of this. One reason that we don't need this many safety regulations is consumers. Consumers are very good about complaining. Any uh, use of Yelp or 
Google Maps will show you that people love to complain about things they don't like, and they like to rave about things they do like. It would not be difficult to set up a similar system for star rating for uh, builders. You know, this person's buildings aren't built well. They get a one-star rating. Nobody uses them anymore to build any buildings, even to rent out to someone, because, oh, well, this was built by such and such building company. They don't get a good rating. I don't want to live there. Um, so that problem would solve itself in that way. But it also solves itself in uh, civil court as well. Um, rather than just having laws up front that supposedly prevent safety violations, which they don't always do, by the way. A lot of times builders still do violate all of these codes. They charge the money for compliance, but then they end up violating the codes. And it's common for electricians to see faulty electrical setups that don't follow code, for plumbers to see the same thing. Um, so these these regulations don't really prevent people from doing things the wrong way anyway. But the other thing that can happen is you can sue people. If someone builds a building that um, falls apart, that collapses, we saw this this year uh, in Florida, um, the condo building that collapsed in Surfside, Florida, there, there's lawsuits pending against the, against the uh, I believe the building's owners and the builders. Um, it's a very old building, so the builders may not be ultimately responsible. But that kind of thing can happen when, when there is a tragedy. It's, you know, something we want to avoid. But when there is a tragedy, we can always file a lawsuit. And that doesn't just help things on the back end after something happens. The fact that someone can be sued makes them make better decisions in the first place. Probably better decisions than some code writing authority could. Because if I'm an electrician and I know that I can later be sued for the work that I do in this home that I'm building, I'm going to be pretty careful about how I wire things. And I'm going to use common sense and say, let me make sure I insulate these wires well enough where they're not going to touch and they're not going to cause a fire because I don't want to get sued down the road for millions and millions of dollars that I can't afford to pay because somebody's home was damaged or, God forbid, somebody died. So on top of building uh, restrictions and regulations, there are also building permits. And that doesn't seem like a big deal. Like, okay, well, yeah, you're going to build a building. you got to get, like, the permit from the government, whatever. It's, it's so commonplace that we just take it for granted. But this is a real cost that we have to think about when we're uh, considering why homes are so expensive. Um, so HomeAdvisor.com says the national average cost of a building permit is roughly $1,308. Um, homeowners, homeowners can spend anywhere between uh, $424 and $2,264. Depending on what city you live in, though, the cost could be as high as $7,500, whereas small towns may only charge $150 for one. Uh, ImproveNet.com says that the, the variance in the price depends on the size and quality of the new structure, the intended use of the new structure, the location, for example, proximity to schools, the complexity of the work involved, uh, the number of permits you require, the length of time it takes for the building authority to evaluate the application, um, and any inspection fees. A lot of that seems pretty arbitrary and just set by whatever local government is charging the, the fees for regulation. So there's a lot of money involved um, when it comes to even getting a permit to even begin construction. Um, most localities require you to get a permit before you even start. So safety regulations are one thing, but it's another thing for uh, business for businesses who are developing or individuals who are trying to build their own homes to have to fork out thousands of dollars 
just for the supposed privilege of building a structure with your own hands on your own land. Um, why is it the governments have to make money on it? That, that part doesn't make sense to me. And you say, well, to pay for the inspections and all of that. Well, it doesn't take $3,000 to inspect a building. And these things are supposed to be paid for with tax dollars. Those people are probably paid by tax dollars. But then it's just another expense. And that doesn't go nowhere. It doesn't get absorbed by the building contractor. That gets passed on to the price of the home and then to the bank that has the mortgage. And then if someone rents it out, it gets passed on to the tenant who lives there later. Um, so these are very real costs that affect real people. The um, Washington State Department of Health says a construction permit for a $200,000 to $250,000 project costs just over $4,000. Um, and then the city of Seattle's Department of Construction and Inspections says that as of 2021, a $235,801 home, no idea where they got that number. It's certainly not the median home price in Seattle. That's closer to a million probably. Anyway, $235,801 home would cost $4,283 for a building permit. So now Seattle's in Washington state. So of course you're looking at paying both of those. If you're building a $235,000 building, you're looking at paying about $8,200 just for permits. And that's just these permits. I'm sure there are others that you would be looking at, at having to, to purchase. This is just to get you in the door. I want to build something on my own very expensive piece of land in Seattle. So let's talk about homeowners associations or HOAs and deed restrictions. So a lot of people say, well, homeowners association is just a voluntary thing that people enter into together because they want their neighborhood to look a certain way or feel a certain way or be a certain way. It's to protect property values and that sort of thing. So I have a couple problems with this notion. One, yes, it's voluntarily entered into, but then what happens is someone sells their land and then whoever buys that land, granted they know it when they buy it, but they are stuck with the homeowners association that was already there. It doesn't allow for people to do what they want with their own property and it puts the ability to make decisions about what you do on your property in your neighbor's hands. That doesn't make any sense to me. If I buy a piece of property, I should be able to do what I want on it as long as it isn't illegal in some other way. Um, it shouldn't be restricted by my neighbors. And a lot of times homeowners associations have rules that are restrictive and prohibitive for really no good reason. There are homeowners associations that say you have to have a certain type of fence, you have to have certain types of trees in your yard, or you can't have trees, or you have to have a certain number of trees. There are homeowners associations that say that this is very common, that your house has to be a neutral color. Sometimes they'll even define which neutral colors those can be, like tan or beige. Um, and a lot of the, the defense for homeowners associations is, well, it protects the value of my property if my neighbor's houses look a certain way. I would argue that it's not your business what your neighbor's house looks like. And if someone is willing to say, I'm not going to buy this house because the next door, uh, the next door neighbor's house is blue instead of beige. Um, I don't know that they were going to buy that house anyway. Um, and if they were, uh, they're probably going to be the pickiest damn customer that you've ever dealt with uh, as a buyer. I, I don't look at that when, when I'm looking at a place to rent. I don't look at, well, you know, let's see the apartment next door. Uh, I don't like the color of it, you know, and there's, there's 
you know, there's that car at the place next door, uh, not even where I'm going to live, but there's a car at the place next door that's like up on blocks, and it's just, uh, I don't know, I, I don't think I want to rent there, right? Um, and I'd be the same way purchasing a property, um, you know, that if there's a lot of crime, there's a lot of crime, but that's a statistic thing you look up. That's not something that you can even determine by saying, well, that person's house is a weird color next door, or that car is up on blocks. And a lot of what homeowners associations and deed restrictions do is limit the ability for people without a lot of resources. They limit people from being able to do things that they want with their own property. And in a lot of cases, they limit them from being, even being able to stay there. Because if you can't afford to upkeep your home a certain way, a lot of homeowners associations will impose a bunch of fees. And eventually, this can affect your ability to even stay there. Uh, deed restrictions are pretty similar. Um, Deeds.com defines a deed restriction as follows. Uh, simply put, deed restrictions limit what you can and can't do with your home, a common tool for homeowners associations to maintain uniformity in the neighborhood. Deed restrictions can be added by parties such as the builder or the developer, the homeowners association, or even a previous owner. Once a deed restriction is put in place, it can be very difficult to have removed, and in many cases, removal may be impossible. There are a lot of... Um, developments like this in in cities and even outside of cities where you have a bunch of lots empty lots for sale and they'll say okay well you can you can buy this lot and you can build a home on it but your home has to be a thousand square feet or more it has to be made of brick it can't be a pre-manufactured home you need a driveway the driveway can't be gravel you have to have um, you know a, a well but the well can't be uncovered you have to have a certain type of structure on it and a lot of times they can have the same kind of rules that HOAs have and they can work in conjunction with each other uh, to say that that new house you build must be beige. And I think it just takes a lot of character out of the neighborhood too to say that everything must be the same, but that's a personal opinion. So HOAs and deed restrictions drive up compliance costs in a different way. It may not be directly through the government, but certainly drives up compliance costs. Um, because you, you're having to comply with all these rules and regulations, having to have a home that's a certain size, that sort of thing. Property taxes are paid over and over on the same piece of land or the same building. They increase when the property value increases, um, and they increase when the government spends more on something and new property taxes are voted in. So you can get kind of stuck where you own a, own a piece of land with a house on it, and the property tax is one amount when you get it, and it just gets more and more and more expensive throughout the years. And you have to keep paying it over and over. This isn't like sales tax. It's not one and done. So property tax rates in the United States. New Jersey currently has the highest uh, property tax rate in the U.S. at 1.89%, followed by Texas at 1.81%. Even at only 1%, that means you'd be paying $2,500 a year on a $250,000 home. That's often paid through your mortgage payment and would add about $108, or sorry, $208 per month. Many times, properties are assessed by the local tax authority at a lower value than they're actually worth, but sometimes they're assessed higher, meaning you would be paying tax on a higher value than what you could actually sell the house for. There's also regulations on minimum lot sizes. This is typical in rural areas and happens in some cities as well. Some examples of this are uh, Dover, Massachusetts. A single-family home must be on one acre. In uh, Colorado Springs, Colorado, there are two different zones. One, uh, homes have to be on a half acre. One, they have to be on 20,000 square feet. Cook County, Illinois, one zone is five acres. One zone is 40,000 square feet. And in Los Angeles, one zone is five acres. Another zone is 20,000 square feet. 
there are also regulations in a lot of places on minimum home size, uh, and that's in the country and in the city. Lawrence County and Walnut Ridge, Arkansas require a 600-foot minimum home size. In Minnesota, minimum home sizes vary from 500 to 2,000 square feet. Can you imagine that? Buy a piece of property and then you go to build a home. Hopefully you would know this ahead of time, but you go to build a home and find out you can't build a home less than 2,000 square feet. So much for a little cabin in the woods, right? Because that's not what the city lets you do. There are also regulations throughout the country, um, many times at the county level, um, for camping on your own land. Now, this seems a little, in one way it seems a little silly. It's like, okay, it's illegal for, you know, Tommy and Johnny to go out and camp in their backyard. Well, maybe technically that's probably not going to get enforced. Um, and maybe you also think, well, of course it should be illegal to camp on your land. I wouldn't want my neighbors living in a tent instead of a home uh, next door to me. Again, that's driving down my property value, right? But a lot of times, camping on your own land even includes staying in an RV, uh, living on a tiny home on wheels. You build a nice tiny home on wheels, you can have one build. There are, there are hundreds of builders in this country um, that build tiny homes on wheels. You can't just park it in, on a lot that you own in a lot of places and live in it because it's on wheels, it counts as an RV, that counts as camping, and you're not allowed to camp on your own land. Some places have exceptions if you're building a, an actual, you know, they call it sticks and bricks building on your property, then you can camp while you're building it. Some of them still have restrictions on how long you can do that while building it before they say, Okay, well, you can't camp here any longer because it's taking you too long to build your home. Um, and some places will say you can camp on your land kind of recreationally part of the year, um, you know, so many weeks out of the year, but no more. Maybe this makes sense in some places where you're right next to your neighbors, but when you're talking about owning 20 acres out in the middle of nowhere and the county has the ability to come along and say, hey, man, you've been camping out here too long. What the fuck business does the government have to tell me I can't camp, quote-unquote, camp in an RV, live in an RV on my own land out in the middle of nowhere where I'm not bothering anybody? Some towns have regulations on being connected to city utilities. There's a, quote-unquote, tiny home-friendly town in West Texas called Spur, and they have done a lot of publicity saying that they're tiny home-friendly. I would beg to differ because they have a lot of restrictions. Um, one is that you have to have your home connected to water and electricity, the city water, the local power company, and so that keeps you from really having an off-grid home. A lot of people want a tiny home because they don't want to be connected to the grid, and sure, you live in a city, but it's a city with like one gas station. Uh, you're kind of in the middle of nowhere. It would be kind of nice to use that West Texas sun to have uh, solar power, but uh, I suppose you could, but you also have to be connected to the power grid because they said so, I guess, is the reason. They also require you to secure your home to a foundation in Spur, Texas. Um, according to the city, that's to uh, protect you from tornadoes, and I think it's also to protect you from your own good judgment, apparently, um, because if you want to get blown away in a tornado uh, by being on wheels instead of a foundation, that's Kind of your own business. So supply and demand de determines the price of anything. 
zoning in cities for single-family use uh, limits the ability for people to use all of the land in a given place. Um, so this uh, zoning happens in major cities especially, um, in well, all cities pretty much zone, but it gets out of hand in a lot of major cities. Um, Seattle is a good example of this. It's very expensive to live there, and one reason for that is that they're extremely restrictive on single-family use uh, zoning. So there are huge swaths of a relatively small land area city um, that you can't have more than one family living on a single uh, piece of property. Now this actually limits people from even being able to like rent out their basement to another family or something because then you'd have two families living there, it's effectively an apartment, and that's not legal. Now, part of the reason that people say they want this is, well, there's only so much street parking. But the problem with that is there's no exception for places that have driveways. A lot of places in Seattle do have driveways, and they don't say, well, because cars can park in the driveway, you can have more than one family living on this lot. Now, they have made some exceptions for ADUs, accessory dwelling units, which are mother-in-law flats, little guest houses, things like that. And they'll say, well, if it's a separate building and it's behind your actual house and it's small and you can rent it out then to somebody as long as it's on your own property and but there's still all these other restrictions like you can't sell that ADU in your backyard separately it has to go with the property um, and it has to be a certain size and it has to be on a foundation it has to be a sticks and bricks building it can't be just an RV behind your house all this kind of stuff why that's okay and renting out your basement isn't, I don't really understand. It seems like someone in an ADU would be just as likely to own a car as somebody renting out a basement. Maybe more likely, actually, because it's probably more expensive. Um, the other thing is uh, zoning for non-residential areas also limits the availability of, of all land. So if all residences have to be in a certain part of the city and can't be mixed in with commercial use buildings, um, shops, and things like that, um, then it limits the, the use of potentially cheaper land. It might be cheaper just because not as many people want to live there to live right downtown on a main street next to a coffee shop, right? But you can't just buy that land and build a house there in most cases because the city will say, well, this is a commercial area. You have to live over there on 1st Street, not on Main Street. Um, and so you would have to build your house in that area where the land is more expensive because more people want to live there. So again, it removes choice and raises cost. Incidentally, the state of Texas has no statewide zoning rules, and counties have limited power to make zoning rules at the state level, so the state restricts counties' um, ability to do that. Um, but they don't restrict cities, so cities in Texas, however small, can still have uh, zoning authority and say this is a residential area, this is a commercial area. And um, Houston is actually well known for having supposedly no zoning rules, although they do have a lot of land use rules, which are kind of the same thing, but they're not nearly as restrictive as a lot of major U.S. cities are. So what does a typical home cost in the U.S.? According to Zillow.com, the typical American home cost is $298,933 in 2021, up 16.7% from a year ago. Um, for renting, uh, rent.com says the average one-bedroom apartment in 2020 rented for $1,621. A 2019 report from the U.S. Census says that the 2019 real median earnings for men was $57,456. 
and was $47,299 for women. So there's that gender pay gap. So that means if you're a typical American man, you need to spend over five years of your income purchasing nothing else to buy a typical home. If you're a typical American woman, it would take over six years. You'd spend 33% of your income on rent alone as an average male earner and 41% of your income on rent as an average female earner. So all of this is pushing a lot of people towards the tiny home movement. Uh, I've mentioned it a couple of times so far, but um, there are a lot of restrictions on tiny homes as well. One is the, the camping restriction. that You can't camp on your own land. And incidentally, a lot of those same localities and states say, well, if it's on wheels, it's camping. So you can't have a tiny home on wheels. But the problem becomes once you stick it on a foundation, then they say, oh, well, now you have to follow all these building codes. And that gets very expensive very quickly. So you might buy a piece of property for $20,000 and it might be great and out in the middle of nowhere where no one else can see what you're doing. But if they find out that you're building a building without a permit, my God, you're going to get in trouble. And if they find out that you're quote unquote camping in a professionally built tiny home on wheels on your own land, that'll get you in trouble too. Because they're considered RVs, there are other codes that affect tiny homes um, that are enforced in different ways. Sometimes they're enforced by states that say, well, you have to have an RVIA, that's the Recreational Vehicles um, in Industry Association uh, certification. Um, so they'll say you have to have an RVIA certification for it to be considered an RV, for it to be uh, given a registration as a vehicle for an RV, and that can affect your ability to get insurance for it um, because you need to insure it properly as an RV and not as just a car that you know, or a van or whatever it may be that you're, you're building on if you're building your own. Almost all uh, professionally manufactured RVs are RVIA certified, but they tend to be very expensive and frankly, they tend to be made of pretty shoddy materials. They tend to have very little insulation and they uh, just aren't built to the caliber that people are building their tiny homes. Some builders um, of tiny homes um, do have RVIA certification as well, and that can get you into some RV parks uh, and in some cases, it might help you be able to rent a piece of land or buy a piece of land that you could actually, quote unquote, camp in on a permanent basis. There are housing and urban, urban development, um, U.S.-wide regulations about living in an RV. Um, technically, you can't live in a, an RV full time. It doesn't count as a home. Um, but there's no real repercussions for doing it. And... There's no definition of what full-time is. Now, the RVIA codes are enforced a lot of times by RV parks. They're enforced by governments sometimes, things like that. Uh, it can be difficult and expensive to get an RVIA certification, just like every other certification um, and, and permit, because there are a lot of rules, again, that you have to follow. There's, a, there's another set of codes. There's an ANSI um, code that you have to follow for RVs to make sure that everything's made of flame retardant materials, that all the electrical systems are made a certain way and everything. And while this does protect the occupant of an RV, um, I understand that. I do think it is somebody's own responsibility to make sure that the place they live is safe. Um, and frankly, there's not as big of a risk if you um, burn down your RV as if you, compared to like burning down your house where you could burn down your neighbor's house or something like that. You're kind of just putting yourself at risk and your own property at risk. Um, but I do understand why insurance companies would want to say, hey, let's make sure that your 
doing this in a safe way so that we don't have to pay out when uh, you burn your own RV down accidentally. So a lot of this, whether it's related to tiny homes or homeowners associations or building permits or safety regulations, a lot of this is enforced by government and a lot of it's enforced by NIMBYs, not in my backyard people. So NIMBYs are people who say, well, I'm for, you know, uh, tiny homes because homeless people could more easily have a roof over their head, but not in my backyard. Um, so that type of person. And they're the type of people who are um, suggesting to city councils that we have laws to regulate a lot of these things and that we have uh, a higher threshold on building permits so those poor people don't come in and build a house next to them. I don't want a shack next to me, right? Well, who said it would be a shack? It just means that it didn't cost them $250,000 to build a house next to you. So NIMBYs enforce a lot of this. A lot of them, again, use street parking as well. You know, there's going to be more cars on the street if we're more densely packed in here, and I don't want to be this densely packed in. Well, guess what? If you don't want to be densely packed in with a bunch of other people, go live out in the middle of the sticks, get a big piece of property, and then you won't have to worry about being too close to your neighbors. It's not the city's problem, and it's not your neighbor's problem if you decide that you don't want people to be that close to you. Uh, that's your problem. You didn't get a big enough piece of property. Live out in the middle of nowhere if you want to feel like you live out in the middle of nowhere. And again, with HOAs and things like that, it's fear of driving down home value. But frankly, what it, what it is, is it is a desire to control others' decisions and to control others' lives and what they do with them and how they live their lives. And that's bullshit because each of us has the right to do things we want. And if I use my hard-earned money to go buy a piece of property, I should be able to do, do with it what I damn well please. The phrase, my rights end where yours begins, needs to be a lot more common than it is, and it definitely applies in this case. And everybody from NIMBYs to local governments to state governments need to get this through their skulls. This has been the J Liberty Podcast. You can find more podcasts and what I write at jliberty.org. That's the letter J and then the word liberty.org.